In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We are still discussing the theme of reason and intellect in Islamic teachings in this series called Life, the Islamic Answer. As you will remember, the topic that we were discussing the last few times that we met was that of the importance of selecting the right teacher or the right scholar and therefore recognizing what are their traits, what are their characteristics. The teachings of Islam have told us that whether we are aware of this or not, when we're choosing someone to listen to, we're opening our mind, our heart, our soul. We have to be very selective in who we allow to influence us that way. In some cases, we're doing this intentionally. We are choosing to listen to someone, to, to, to use someone or to listen to someone, follow someone as a teacher, as a scholar. And in many other cases, we're not even aware that we're doing that. We're simply being influenced, we're simply opening ourselves up to certain types of information from certain individuals, or we're not even aware that they are influencing us. And this is why in our religion we saw that there is an insistence and there is this description that is given to the right person to choose that we are going to allow to become a teacher or a scholar, someone that we will consider to be a source of knowledge, especially when it comes to religious knowledge. But as we said, the influence goes way beyond simply religious knowledge, theoretical religious knowledge. And so we started looking at some of the characteristics and we saw some of these are more around beliefs, around the worldview of this person, the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the relationship with religion, the relationship with the afterlife. And we also saw that there are a number of spiritual traits that our religion emphasizes, that this is someone who gives an importance to religious teachings, and to the afterlife, and that this shows in their spirituality. So we're not only looking for someone who carries a vast amount of information to consider to be our scholar and our teacher. We need the spiritual dimension, we need the beliefs and theological dimensions to be there. And we spent a good amount of time on those. And then we saw that in our religion, in addition to these, there are also a lot of teachings that tell us it should go even beyond just the knowledge that you carry and even your spirituality. It should show in your conduct, in your general behavior in life, that this is someone that you should be able to recognize in general that they carry the spirit of the religion in everything they do. It doesn't just stop at the amount of information that they carry. And it doesn't even stop at the beliefs that they have and their spirituality. And this is where we saw that there are even character traits that were mentioned, moral traits that were mentioned, that this is someone who doesn't have arrogance, 
jealousy, that they uh, are easy to get along with, that they carry a lot of humility towards others. And even we saw that there was a huge importance given to this notion of silence, for instance. And we saw that silence is not just about not talking. It means knowing when to talk and when not to talk. And if talking, knowing how to talk. What do I share? With who do I share it? And in what way do I share it? Right? We spent, inshallah, enough time on all of this. We saw in the, specifically in the um, hadith, for instance, last week, one hadith talk once again, and we saw a lot of hadith around this idea of comparing in the hadith between the true scholar and the one pretending to be, the true scholar and the fraudster. And the reason is because it's too easy to get tricked by the person who may be presenting themselves as a scholar because they carry a certain amount of knowledge and so they should pass as a scholar. And when you see the characteristics given, they never have to do with the amount of information. That's not the main, the main criteria. In the hadith we, we looked at, for instance, that the true scholar is someone who has a lot of knowledge, that they have the compassionate patience, the hilm, someone who has a lot of patience, wisdom to use that knowledge, to teach that knowledge, to share it, discuss it, and silence. And by opposition, the fraudster is the person who sins. They're not afraid to commit sins against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We saw the three relationships, right? One, the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not good, even though they may carry the knowledge. Two, the relationship with others who have less knowledge than them. They act as though they can dominate them. They're arrogant. They're superior. They act in that way, which is the opposite. The more knowledge you have, the more humility you're supposed to show. And this we saw across any hadith that talked about knowledge. We saw that this was a recurrent theme, the humility you show. And thirdly, that they help oppressors. And this is again a theme that comes back again and again in the teachings. And we said that this is something that makes sense. It's logical. Those who are in power quickly realize that one of the best ways to dominate, to influence, to manipulate people is through knowledge. And the person who is in a position of rule does not necessarily have the knowledge themselves. So who do they need? They need the scholars. And that's why scholars are so attractive and they will be rewarded very handsomely by those who are in positions of rule and authority and power if they allow their knowledge to be used in that way. And sometimes they are put in very difficult situations to see, you know, are they going to use their knowledge in that way or not? This has happened across history and it continues to happen today and it will continue to happen. This is simply the nature of human beings and human societies. We saw another hadith talking about the general manners and the conduct in life, including, for instance, that the scholar is not someone who lives a life without meaning, a life of foolishness and a life of entertainment. And even though separately, individually, these things in themselves are not an issue. But if you say that in general, this is a life of, you know, living a life without meaning, a life of entertainment, a life of joking around and humor and funny and happy, and, and that's all that you find in that life. This is a life that lacks seriousness. This would be a life of someone who's aimless, who doesn't understand why they're in this world. This is incompatible with carrying 
knowledge. The more knowledge you carry, the more this should show in generally the life that you have. That this is a life that is serious, a life that has an aim, and you're generally always moving towards that aim. You never lose sight of it. This should be clear. And you saw the hadith talk about, you know, this is not someone who's a jokester. You shouldn't be recognized. People, when they think about you, this should not be the first thing that comes to mind. That, oh, this is someone who's a jokester. They're the clown of the group. They're always funny. They're, that, that's not compatible with a serious, deep amount of knowledge. Someone who's rowdy and loud and messy and all of those things were mentioned in the hadith. Right? In fact, we saw the opposite in the hadith, that this is someone who weeps a lot, who cries a lot, the hadith said, by opposition. And this is someone who displays wisdom in everything they enter, they enter, the Holy Prophet said, and everything they exit. He just left it at that, very general. Which means that's everything. Everything they do, everything they decide to do, and everything they decide to remove themselves from, they do it gently, the Holy Prophet says, or with wisdom. It's intentional. It's meditated. It's planned, studied, analyzed. Is this the right thing to do? Maybe it was before. It's no longer now. I remove myself from it. Everything is well thought out. The more you see or you think that someone is carrying knowledge, the more you're supposed to recognize these and the manner in which they behave. And you see, these are constant reminders in our religion that when you say someone is a scholar, that someone is a teacher, we're not just looking at the amount of information that they carry. Okay? And so I think we covered a lot of the other attributes that they are truthful, that they are thanked, if you will remember, that this is someone that you do not forget to thank them, to show gratitude so that they keep giving more. Okay, we saw that it's both sides. In any case, that they are very competent. And this was a whole topic. We're not, we're going to touch it again on it today, inshallah. This whole topic of competence, that someone who has demonstrated ability, and Imam Ali alayhi salam was saying, this is someone who has demonstrated an ability to carry heavy loads, the Imam was saying, to carry, to carry heavy burdens, Someone who can carry a lot because there's responsibility that comes with knowledge. It's not just about the information you have. Yes, it could mean this is someone who can carry a lot of information, but that would be a very superficial understanding. It's you know how to apply that knowledge and that information to reality. And the more you do, the more burden and responsibility is going to be put on you. Can you actually handle it? And this basically tells us that in Islam, there's a relationship between authority, small scale, big scale, authority and knowledge. One of the main criteria, one of the main ingredients that you're supposed to have to take a position of authority is knowledge. Before I look at other things. And then I have to include the other things because someone may have all the knowledge in the world, but the moment that there are big decisions to make, they stress. They have anxiety and panic attacks. Well, this is not someone who can carry a heavy load. So this is the rest of the criteria that you need before you place someone in a position of authority. First, do they have the knowledge? This is what goes without saying. If there are two people who are equal, I go with the one who has more knowledge. But now, if others have the same amount of knowledge, I have to take the other criteria that the Imam is giving here, and we'll see others. Can they carry heavy loads? 
demonstrated ability to take on more responsibility, the responsibility we want to place on them? Have they demonstrated that they can carry that responsibility? In any case, we spent a, a good amount of time on this. And finally, the Imam was talking about this is someone who acts as a role model so that others follow them. They understand that they are a role model. Whether you like it or not, you now carry knowledge and people know that you carry knowledge. You represent the religion. You don't just represent yourself. This is not just about you as an individual. This is now about you and what you represent. Are you acting like a role model so that others learn and act the same way? Whether you realize it or not, whether you want to or not, people are going to look at everything. This is how human beings are. Which shoes do you wear? Which car do you drive? Which house do you live in? How do you eat? What do you read? Who do you talk to? How do you spend your free time? These are things that are not supposed to be about the knowledge. I should be really just focused purely on how much information does this person carry for the topic I'm looking for. But this is not how human beings are. If I'm opening up my heart, my soul, my spirit to this person and I want them to influence me, I'm going to be curious about all these other things. Because now this is a role model. Even though I may not think of the word role model associated with this person, that's it. If I'm opening up to this person as a teacher, as a scholar, I'm moving in that direction. So of course we have to be a lot more aware of what, whom we are opening up to as a learner. But then as a scholar, you have to understand that this is a burden you now carry. It goes without saying. You're knowledgeable. The, uh, the Ruayat say this. You are now a role model. Are you acting like one? Otherwise, you're not doing right by the knowledge that you have been given. Okay? And so, today, inshallah, we are going to continue with the duties. We said last time, inshallah, we're trying to finish with the general characteristics. <clears throat> a couple of remarks about the duties, inshallah, we don't spend too much time on the remarks, and then we get into the ahadith. The first is that when we began talking about the characteristics of the scholar, of the teacher, we said that, in fact, every characteristic and every trait that is mentioned about scholars and teachers in Islam is, in fact, a duty. It's, in fact, a responsibility. When it says the scholar is not someone who carries jealousy and envy, Okay, so one way to understand it is to say this is someone who has th have that trait. The other way to understand it is to say this is a duty. This is a responsibility that now that you have knowledge, you have to be extra careful to purify your heart from envy and jealousy, from arrogance. You have to work extra hard to learn to really teach yourself humility towards Allah, towards the people, towards the people you teach and so on and so forth. So every trait and every duty, every characteristic and every trait we looked at is a duty and a responsibility. That's first. Secondly, when we go to the ahadith, we see that there are certain duties that have been singled out even more and explicitly presented as being duties. So when we were talking about the others, they were not saying, and the duty of the scholar is. They're just saying a scholar is someone who has X, Y, and Z traits. But then we have other ahadith, and we're going to see some of that, where the way, the construction of the wording, the way it's presented is, the scholar has a duty to do this. 
So this is even more explicit that these are the duties of the scholars. Okay? The topic of the duties and responsibilities of the scholar, if we wanted to spend more time, we could spend much, much longer on this topic if we wanted to, simply by going back to the characteristics and the traits of the good Muslim, the good follower of Ahlul Bayt. Because the scholar is supposed to be the one who displays than anyone else. They should be the perfect example or as close to that as possible of all of these traits. Okay, so we're not going to do that. We leave that to another time, inshallah. We'll have a, a whole series of lectures on the good Muslim and the good follower of Ahlul Bayt and what that looks like. Here we're focusing on a couple of traits that are very relevant to our topic here. Okay, duties specifically related to the teacher and the scholar. And ones that were highlighted as such in the hadith. This first hadith, in a way, continues where we ended last week. If you will remember, the last hadith that we looked at was this long metaphor from, I think, Imam al-Baqir or Imam al-Sadiq, maybe Imam al-Sadiq It was from Imam al-Sadiq in which he was basically presenting this idea that knowledge is like a man, like a human being, with a head, with eyes, with ears, with other faculties. And he was explaining how each one of the traits and characteristics and benefits of knowledge can be likened to these traits of a human being. And of course, this makes it a lot easier to learn, and it makes you a little bit more responsible to come up with the true interpretation, because he leaves you with an image without explaining everything around it. But when he says, you know, the eyes of knowledge are purity from envy. And that tells you that, okay, so therefore if I think about this, it means that if I have envy and I am a scholar, I'm a blind scholar. I'm a scholar that can't really see because I don't have the eyes. The eyes are missing. The ears are the understanding, the imam was saying. Understanding is the ears of knowledge. It means that I didn't really hear what the knowledge was telling me, even though I carry the knowledge, and therefore I have no ears. It's someone who's deaf, even though you carry the knowledge, and so on and so forth. So today, we're looking, we're starting with this hadith that follows the same pattern. This one is from Imam Ali salam. You'll see a lot of the same images, but many that are different, and the hadith does not begin in the same way. So I thought I would also add it. But we won't spend too much time on, I'll try, not to comment too much on the sections of the hadith as we looked at the previous hadith and I think we we said enough there. So Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, مَنْ تَوَاضَعَ لِلْمُتَعَلِّمِينَ وَذَلَّ لِلْعُلَمَاءِ سَادَ بِعِلْمِهِ فَالْعِلْمُ يَرْفَعُ الْوَضِيعِ وَتَرْكُهُ يَضَعُ الرَّفِيعِ The point from the whole hadith, it's a longer hadith, just like the, the metaphor, we're going to get to the metaphor soon, the point for us is we're focusing on the duty. We're saying there are things that were mentioned as specific duties for the scholars and the teachers. The hadith here started with that duty. It says, so Imam Ali salam says, the one who humbles himself to the learners and who lowers himself to the scholars. So both sides. And you see the relationship on both sides. So as a teacher... The first line applies to you 100%. The Imam says, the one who humbles himself to the learners. 
as a teacher, you have a duty to lower yourself, to humble yourself to the learners. And then, and who lowers himself to the scholars, there are those who know more than you. Remain humble to them and remain humble to the people learning knowledge from you. Okay, and then the, the imam continues. He says, the one who does these two things shows humility to the learner and the teacher will be superior because of his knowledge. And this is very interesting. It's as though the imam is saying, your knowledge shows by that humility. You will end up being elevated. You will end up dominating. You will end up being superior because you showed humility to the learner and to the teacher, which is counterintuitive. You want to be superior, you're going to act superior. The imam says, no, you want to be superior, you act with humility. But the imam gave you a criteria. You're not just acting with humility to act with humility. There's something that those two categories carry that makes them special that the imam says, you lower yourself to those two. The one seeking knowledge, you humble yourself to them. The one who shows that they are genuinely interested in learning. That's one. And two, the person who has actually done that. And now they are a scholar. They are a teacher. Those two categories, lower yourself to them. Act with humility towards them. The outcome is, you will be elevated. You will come to dominate, the Imam says. Sa'ada bi'ilmi. You become a Sayyid. You become a master through that knowledge. What knowledge? Humility. Okay? That's the first part. وَتَرْكُهُ يَضَعُ الرَّفِيعَ So, فَالْعِلْمُ يَرْفَعُ الْوَضِيعَ The person who is low is going to be elevated through knowledge. وَتَرْكُهُ يَضَعُ الرَّفِيعَ The person who is noble and elevated will be lowered because they left knowledge behind. But knowledge was humility. Okay, so that part is very interesting. And here, I'll stop maybe a couple of minutes and I'll continue. The hadith continues just so that there is not, not too much of a break. There's a clear link between this part and community. So that we don't spend too much time when we talk about community. Here the imam is saying, imagine a group of people where the person who carries the knowledge is humble towards the learners. And imagine the learners or the scholar, all of those people, are so humble towards those who carry more knowledge than them. So those who have more knowledge respect those who have less knowledge and act with humility. And those with less knowledge, they act with humility towards those who have more. This is a community and a community built around knowledge. This is what's bringing these people together. And this is why they're acting in this way. Because of knowledge. I respect you, and I treat you with humility, not with arrogance, because I know that you're someone who wants to learn more. That's it. No other criteria. And so, this is one part, and this is the more relevant part to our discussion. Besides this, because we're headed towards community, and I don't want to spend too much time on community, I'm trying to move a little bit faster so that I don't have to repeat all the hadith again there. 
This goes beyond the person who is just a strict teacher and a strict learner. The Imam is saying, anyone who respects the learner and acts with humility towards them, and anyone who respects the scholar and the teacher and acts with humility towards them. You don't have to be a learner yourself. You don't have to be a scholar yourself. It applies to you even more because it's addressed to you. But anyone, and this is what brings the rest of the community in. Not everybody in the community needs to be officially a seeker of knowledge. And not everybody in the community needs to officially be a scholar and a teacher. There are other people. There are the bystanders and the observers of all of this. Inshallah, we'll talk a little bit about that. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with people who, who have moved on in life. That's it. You have your life to live. You know the basics that you need in religion, everything that you're required to know that is relevant. And inshallah, we'll talk about this when we talk about the types of knowledge that our religion says we have to learn. We'll talk about this. But you've moved on. You don't have a lot of time to dedicate to be formally, officially a learner. That's fine. That's okay. But you are part of the community. It's the same community. Do you have a role to play? Well, here we have these hadith that say, yes, one of your roles is still to respect those who are seeking the knowledge and to act with humility towards them and to act with humility towards those who are now scholars and teachers. That's part of being part of a community. And then the, the Imam continues with the rest of the metaphor, very similar to what Imam Sadiq was saying. So here the Imam says, وَرَأْسُ الْعِلْمِ التَّوَاضُعِ So the Imam is also going to give us the same metaphor or very similar metaphor. There will be some slight differences where knowledge is, imagine knowledge to be a human being, a man. So the Imam begins with the head. Imagine a man, a man without a head means they're not alive, they're useless, right? It's an incomplete human being. So the imam begins with the head. وَرَأْسُ الْعِلْمِ التَّوَاضِعِ وَبَصَرُهُ الْبَرَاءَةُ مِنَ الْحَسَدِ وَسَمْعُهُ الْفَهْمِ وَلِسَانُهُ الصِّدْقِ وَقَلْبُهُ حُسْنُ النِّيَّةِ وَعَقْلُهُ مَعْرِفَةُ أَسْبَابِ الْأُمُورِ So the head of knowledge is humility. So I don't think we can insist on humility enough. I think we've heard it enough throughout the whole series about the characteristics of the person who carries knowledge. Humility, humility, humility. Be modest towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, towards people, towards people who want knowledge and who, who have knowledge. Its sight, the sight of this man, which is knowledge, its sight is purity from envy. Its hearing is understanding. The ears is understanding. So someone who doesn't really understand, it's like they're deaf. They don't hear what knowledge is telling them. Its tongue is truthfulness. Its heart is good intent. And we said good intent is kind of the, the minimum, right? The higher version of that is sincerity. It's the pure form of the good intent. This is just to have the good intent, to move in the right direction. Its intellect is knowledge of true causes. This one is very interesting. The true causes. And we talked about this much earlier when we were talking about the characteristics of the person who carries knowledge, of the scholar, the teacher. 
That is someone who is doesn't have a superficial understanding of things. You want to understand the true causes. This is a, a real big problem, by the way. It's one thing to, in philosophy, for instance, they call them sometimes the proximal cause. There might be seven things, a domino effect or contributing factors that lead to a certain situation at the end. Do you only see the last one that affected it? Are you able to go back all the way and understand all the causes? The real cause, the deep cause behind something. If you don't see that, you don't really understand what's going on. You can't really analyze. You can't really make it an analyzed or well-judged decision about how to act if you don't know what the true cause is. You're not going far enough in your an analysis. And so the Imam here says, the mind, the intellect, the reason of knowledge is understanding or having knowledge of the true causes. And this is fully compatible with religion, by the way, too. We can apply this to things that are very mundane and worldly. I can look at an economic situation and see what is it that caused this? Is it the proximal cause, the thing that just happened yesterday, that was just announced that today causes this? Or are there things that have been happening for 12 years that are leading to this? As they say, like the, the frog in the hot water, that doesn't feel the, the, the water becoming hot. If it felt it, it would run out. It would jump out of the water. Right? It doesn't feel it until the water is boiling and the frog dies because it didn't feel it coming. When you look at the causes, do you only see the cause that is right before or you're able to go back and understand the true causes? So this applies to things that we live, very mundane, very simple. And it also applies very deeply in our religion too. Do you stop at a superficial understanding of religion? Or do you understand the spirit of our religion? So that you're able to say in this situation, yes, my religion says this, but there's a higher principle that needs to be respected here that maybe requires that I change, that I nuance this hukum. Because the spirit of my religion, that higher principle is much more sacred. This one is more relative. That one is a non-negotiable. You have to go to the higher cause. Or theologically, you go to the higher cause. At the end, do you end up at God? That's the higher cause. That's the ultimate cause. That's the tawheed. We say in our religion, no matter where you look, at the end you're supposed to end up at tawheed. That there's only one God. One system. One set of rules. One set of teachings. Ultimately, it needs to lead to that. It doesn't contradict that. Is this where I'm ending up or not? This is the deeper, more subtle understanding of this. In any case. And then the Imam turns to more spiritual traits. He says, Women thamaratihi, and one of the benefits, the fruits of this knowledge, Women thamaratihi at taqwa, wajtinabul hawa, wattiba'ul huda, wa mujanabatul dhunub, wamawaddatul ikhwan, wal istima'u minal ulama, wal kabulu minhum. And so, among the fruits of knowledge, among the benefits of knowledge, the first one, the Imam says, are piety, God-fearing. And this one is very interesting. So the Imam here is saying, this is a whole discussion in our religion. 
Taqwa first or knowledge first? Spirituality and worship first and God-fearing first or knowledge first? The Imam says this piety and God-fearing and worship is a fruit of knowledge. You can't have a higher amount of worship and God-fearing and piety and religiousness without having the knowledge that goes with it. It stems out of it. It's a benefit. It's a fruit of it. Otherwise, there's shallowness. You think this is taqwa. You think this is God-fearing. You need to go acquire more knowledge. But again, it's not as simple as that. We've talked about this in the past for those who were with us in the previous series. We, we talked about something, we called it the virtuous cycle. We said in our religion, you see both the relationship between God-fearing and taqwa and knowledge is not a simple relationship. It's a cyclical relationship. First, this is what's referred to. First, you have to acquire knowledge. You have to know God. You have to know what He says. To fear Him. To obey Him. Once you start acting based on what you learned, this is showing taqwa, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises that He will teach you more. He will guide you. He will give you spirituality. And that what you're receiving now from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a form of knowledge. And that form of knowledge, that light that you get from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not the knowledge that you get from information in paper and books and lectures. This is the light that you get from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And again, this light means you have to act even better now. And acting better is called taqwa. You're displaying even more God-fearing. If you do, God says, I'll give you yet more knowledge. And this is the cycle. This is a virtuous cycle that never ends. When you learn something, do you act? That's piety. That's taqwa. That's God-fearing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says again and again in the Quran, Allah, Display piety. Show me that you fear God. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Show me that you fear me. Allah." And God will teach you. God will teach you. You and I both listen to the same lecture. We read the same book. We see the same natural phenomena. But I act in a way and you act in a completely different way. What you get out of it spiritually and what I get out of it spiritually very, very different. It doesn't affect me. It leaves me indifferent. Whereas to you, it takes you to a completely different height. You feel like you're a new person now that you listen to this or you saw this or you experienced this. It's the same thing. Two people feel it. What's the difference? This is what we refer to as the light that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you. Suddenly, you react to knowledge in a very different way. And this is the knowledge that you don't get by theory. This is not an accumulation of data. Right? So here the Imam is talking about that first step. A benefit, a fruit of knowledge is piety. That's just one. There are many others. That one would be sufficient to say there is nothing greater than knowledge. The Imam continues. And he says, and avoiding desires. This is the bottom line of al-hawa. Desires. This, today we would 
refer to it in, in a more contemporary language as discipline. You know something is wrong, something is bad for you. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't engage in that. You should avoid this. And yet you still do. What is it that will help you get that discipline to avoid it? The best thing the Imam says, the best thing that will help you is knowledge. This might be in a lot of cases the difference between someone who can avoid and someone who can't. Maybe you're lacking knowledge. And this opens the door to the whole discussion about what do we mean by knowledge. And again, it goes back to the light and the heart. It's not just an accumulation of information. And we talked a lot about this in the previous series. We both know something, but it doesn't mean that we act based on that knowledge in real life. An example that our scholars often give is people know that once you're dead, you're dead. And your body is not going to move. There's nothing to fear from a dead body. It's no different than any object, right? Most people would not be willing to spend the night be beside a dead corpse. Why? Why is the action not matching the knowledge? Because you might know at a logical level, you know. You have the data. You have the information. But you don't believe in it fully. That's the certainty. That's the yaqeen. Are you really 100% sure? You might not really be able to express it with words that you're not sure. Your logic prevents you. It's like, no, no, I know 100% this person has passed away. Okay, if you are sure, then why wouldn't you spend the night with them? Well, there's something lacking there in your knowledge that makes you think that this is perhaps not fully the case. Something might happen, something is different, incomplete. There are exceptions. There's something in your knowledge that makes you not fully certain. Or in other words, that does not make you a believer. Right? So here, when the Imam says, and avoiding desire. If you have true belief in something, you will not do it. If you're experiencing the pain, you will not put your hand in the fire. That's belief. That's knowledge with certainty. That's why our scholars say the true knowledge is experienced. It's not something you learn with data and theory. Right? This is they refer to this as ilm huduri. The thing is present to you itself. I know there is hell or I experience fire. It's not the same thing. Am I touching something that is hot to the point that it burns my hand? In that moment, I will never continue to do that. I'm going to say this hurts too much. I have to stop. If I'm not experiencing it now, I know that in theory, I know that if I keep eating these sweets, my cavity is going to flare up and I'm going to be hurting. But it's not hurting right now. The knowledge is there. The belief is not. Wishful thinking, maybe. Procrastinating, maybe. If I'm eating and I feel the pain, I assure you I will stop eating. Now I'm feeling the pain. I'm experiencing the thing that I know in theory. I'm now experiencing it. I'm stopping. 
Now I stop. I know that this might make me sick. In theory, I will still do it. Until I experience the sickness and then I'm going to make a resolution. I'm never going to do this again because now I'm sick and I'm experiencing the sickness. I'm experiencing it. Knowledge is not always the theoretical. So when the imam says knowledge makes you avoid, prevents you from falling into the desire. The superficial understanding is it just gives you more arguments, more logic, you know what it is. The deeper meaning is the imam is not always just talking about theoretical knowledge. He's talking about true knowledge. In our lives, we would say something you experience. Spiritually, we would say this is the light that God puts in your heart. So one person says, I know God says I will punish you if you do this, but I'll do it one more time. And the other person says, I see fire. I remember fire. I don't take it lightly. There's hell, there's punishment. And this is what Imam Ali salam refers to in Khutbat al-Muttaqeen, right? When he describes those who are pious. What's their main trait? Hum wal-nar and hum wal-jannah. He says those who are pious, they are like those who are seeing the jannah. The jannah is right there in front of them. Of course they're going to work towards it. You and I can't imagine. We have to come up with a theoretical understanding that if you do good here, there might be something good awaiting for you there. Imam Ali says, but the pious, they see the jannah in front of them. It's right there. And they see hellfire right there. Which opens the door to what? To Isma. Of course you become Masum. Not because you have to, not because God is forcing you to stay away from the sin. You know too much, you see too much. The reality that is only in theory to others is now experienced to you, clearly in front of you. This is hellfire. This is a divine punishment. Of course, I can't proceed and engage in this. Who walks into a fire? No one. Who commits a sin? Well, the person who sees it as something pleasurable, something enjoyable. The person who sees the same thing as hellfire, they can't enjoy this aspect of it. No matter how enjoyable and pleasurable it may seem, there's hellfire here. They see the fire, they see the punishment, they see the harm, the pain. You can't engage in that. So you become masul. You become an infallible. At your level. And the big masum is in the same way. That knowledge is always present to them. But it all stems from knowledge. This is the benefits of, the fruits of knowledge. In any case. And, the fruit, and from the fruits of knowledge, following guidance. So I think, inshallah, this one is clear. Following guidance, sidestepping sins. Affection towards the brethren. Those who are your brothers and sisters in faith. The imam says, knowledge, true knowledge, one of the benefits of knowledge is that it makes you feel affection towards those who are sharing the same faith as you are. Again, community. And you see how central knowledge is to build a good community. 
That's why we said we should aim not only to talk about creating good communities. No, we should say it explicitly. We want to create communities of knowledge. And all these benefits will flow out of them naturally. Start with the right foundation. The foundation is knowledge. The affection between people that this is someone, this is my brother in faith, this is my sister in faith, the Imam says, this is one of the fruits of knowledge. And listening to scholars and accepting from them. The Imam made a point to add this. These were not in the previous hadith from Imam al-Sadiq. Listening to scholars. Not everybody has the humility to go and see what the scholar says. And the Imam is here saying, it's one thing to see what the scholar has to say. It's another to actually accept what they say. And sometimes you have to accept it just because they are the scholar. In other words, you recognize the person as such. You don't always have all the details. You don't always know why this is the ruling, or this is the case, or this is the truth. You don't always have the luxury of hearing a, an hour-long lecture about the topic. If you do, great. If that's convincing to your logic, great. Sometimes it's not. I'm not 100% convinced. If I know that this is a scholar, then I should still accept. And I will add one little remark. When we began the series here, we said the true meaning of the scholar is the infallible. If I know, if I have certainty that this came from my imam, what if I'm not fully convinced? What if I don't really understand it? The imam says, You still accept it. It means you have work to do. It doesn't mean the imam was wrong. You have work to do. Go work on the premises. There's something lacking on your side that makes you not fully understand everything. People in the time of Imam al-Hasan, they didn't understand his political position. And they insulted him and they left him and they told him that it would be better for us to just join Muawiyah and it would have been better for us had you died before. These are the Shia of Imam al-Hasan salam. The Imam had no one left with him in his time. If you don't understand what the Imam says or what he says to do or how he says to act, what do you do? You accept or not? Today it's easy. I'm sitting here 14 centuries later. I look at everything. I have books to read and analysis to look at. And then I can say very easily, you know, the Imam, of course the Imam was right. Of course they should have seen that this was the right thing to do at that time in that setting. It's not out of weakness. This makes more sense. In fact, he's the one who is creating a better, stronger community, preserving religion better. Very easy to do. What am I going through today that may not match this? Where I'm, I'm perhaps not accepting what the Imam says. Any case, the Imam continues. Now more for the moral traits. The Imam says, وَمِن ثَمَرَاتِهِ تَرْكُ الْإِنْتِقَامِ عِنْدَ الْقُدْرَةِ وَاسْتِقْبَاحُ مُقَارَفَةِ الْبَاطِلِ وَاسْتِحْسَانُ مُتَابَعَةِ الْحَقِّ وَقَوْلُ الصِّدْقِ وَالتَّجَافِي عَنْ سُرُورٍ فِي غَفْلَةِ وَعَنْ فِعْلِ مَا يُعْقِبُ نَدَامَةِ And among its fruits, among the fruits or the benefits of knowledge, is abstaining from revenge when capable of doing so. 
See, the imam is going from one type of benefit to another. We talked about theological things. We talked about spiritual things. These are more moral character traits. The imam says when you are capable of getting your revenge finally, what do you do? Imam says, knowledge, one of the benefits, the fruits of knowledge, makes you abstain from revenge when you are capable of doing so. He has to add this. Because of course you will abstain from revenge when you can't actually have revenge. But what if you can? And this is not a calculation. This is not that maybe I shouldn't because at the end I will avenge myself even better by doing. No. You just forgive. Now that you can really avenge, Imam says, you forgive. What makes you do that? Imam says, knowledge. And loathing the perpetration of falsehood. Istiqbah muqarafat al-batil. That you find the things that are evil, that are false, that are sinful, you loathe them. They disgust you. To someone else, this is something very pleasurable and enjoyable. To you, this thing that is a sin, and there is perhaps a dimension of pleasure or joy to it, but to you, it becomes something that you loathe, that disgusts you, that re- it's repulsive to you. And delighting in following what is right. You have a pleasure in doing something that you feel is right, even though others might feel that this is the opposite of pleasure and joy and happiness. What brings you happiness is not that this is something that brings you pleasure and joy. It's that this is something that is right. It's something that is true. That's it. This is where the joy comes from. The mom says, this is, this stems out of knowledge. And saying what is true. وَاسْتِحْسَانُ مُتَابَعَةِ الْحَقِّ وَقَوْلُ الصِّدْقِ that you shun, that you find repulsive, to feel joy in a state of neglect. That's a benefit of knowledge. That you, you elevate yourself, that's a whole term in Arabic that is very difficult to translate, Technically, they say tajafi and tajalli. When something manifests itself or elevates itself, you elevate yourself above feeling joy in a state of neglect. This is a very deep meaning. The superficial understanding of this would be that you do something that is pleasurable, enjoyable, forgetting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's it. Do you elevate yourself from doing something like that or not? In today's world, it's all about happiness. What gives you happiness? What makes you happy? Do whatever makes you happy. That's the criterion. That's the one thing that matters. Does it make you happy? Yeah, do it. Here the imam says, you elevate yourself from sinking to a level where you do something that you enjoy, that you find joy in a state of neglect. Are you forgetting God? 
Are you in a state of forgetting that there is God right now? If yes, you're in a state of neglect, that joy that you're feeling, you should be elevating yourself from it. Not sinking so low. You're not an animal. The animal might follow their desire blindly. You do it because you're wired to feel joy to do something. Are you forgetting God at this point or not? If God is always present, then all your joys and all your happiness and everything you feel is always going to be to the satisfaction of God. He created this pleasure for you and He created you to feel this pleasure. And you remember God at this time. Beautiful. No issue with that. But when there, the idea of God, the presence, the awareness of God disappears, then anything goes. That's when you sink. That's when you're no longer a human being. You're back to your basic biology now. You're no different than any other animal. Your mind, your reason is no longer in control. There's no filter. And so here, the hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he's saying knowledge, one of the benefits, one of the fruits of knowledge is that you do not feel joy while in a state of neglect, in a state of ghafla, in a state of forgetfulness. You don't sink that low. You elevate yourself from that. And then the imam continues, or doing that which leads to regret. You don't do things that will lead to regret afterwards. Stems from knowledge. وَالْعِلْمِ يَزِيدُ الْعَاقِلُ عَقْلًا وَيُورِثُ مُتَعَلِّمَهُ صِفَاتَ حَمْدٍ Knowledge increases the one who has intellect. There are people who have intellect. The mom says the more knowledge you have, the more that intellect increases. And it makes the one who acquires it inherit praiseworthy qualities. People will praise you. And this will be the main theme. It elevates everyone. No matter what your rank is, it will be elevated by knowledge. The imam continues, فَيَجْعَلُ الْحَلِيمَ أَمِيرًا the, the person who already has compassionate patience, wisdom, this person is going to become an emir through knowledge, the imam says. An emir, we could say he's a prince. Or literally, it's someone who gives commandments. That's the emir. It's a, someone who rules, someone who has the authority. And, The person who is worthy of mashura, mashura is to give counsel, advice. You become a wazir. You become a second in command. In other words, it elevates everyone. Because you now carry knowledge. And then the imam says, These are all moral, deep moral traits. وَيُمِيتُ الْبُخْلُ وَيَجْعَلُ مُطْلَقَ الْوَحْشِ مَأْسُورًا وَبَعِيدَ السَّدَادِ قَرِيبًا أو بَعِيدَ الشِّدَادِ قَرِيبًا It crushes obsessive craving. You obsessively crave something. Imam Ali alayhi salam says, enough knowledge will crush that craving. It removes deception. المكر. You don't rely on makr. Makr is a big theme. Inshallah, one day we'll talk more about it. Because sometimes it's used in a positive way. It's simply you reveal something so that you do something in, in, in secret. 
so that it's not clear what you're doing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses that, the Holy Quran. Prophets sometimes use that. The Imams use that. There is a version of makr that is positive. It's required. It shows intelligence. It's planning. It's maneuvering. And there is a version of makr that is negative. That is deception. Deception in the negative sense. So here the Imam says it removes deception. You don't do that evil deception of people. Cheating. It kills greed. It contains and binds all dangers. Or the, the way the Imam says it, وَيَجْعَلُ مُطْلَقَ الْوَحْشِ مَأْسُورًا It's like beasts. But the Imam is talking about dangers, anything dangerous. It's like it's caged or it's contained or it's controlled. You can you contain any risks or any dangers through knowledge. وَبَعِيدَ الشِّدَادِ قَرِيبًا Or بَعِيدَ السَّدَادِ قَرِيبًا Both work. It brings the... The things that are difficult or distant, it brings them, or impossible, it brings them close. Suddenly, it becomes possible because you have the right knowledge. And I think we can come up with so many examples related to this. Okay, so I think we spent enough time on this hadith. I'll move to the next one. Duties. We continue with the duties. One of the main duties, so these hadith, these two hadith, this one and the one from before, we said we're giving them to try to summarize everything we've said in one hadith. And that's why we spent a bit more time on them. Teaching. If it's not the main duty of the scholar, then it's certainly one of the main ones. To teach. And this is explicitly mentioned in the teachings related to knowledge. Imam Ali salam says, مَا أَخَذَ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْجُهَالِ أَنْ يَتَعَلَّمُوا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not make it obligatory, did not make it incumbent upon those who are ignorant to seek knowledge until he made it incumbent upon those who have knowledge to teach it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not make it obligatory upon those who don't know to learn until he made Teaching upon those who know, obligatory. So, and this, there are many ahadith, very similar tone, very similar wording. We're just looking at this one. We've already spent, I think, enough time saying knowledge must lead to action. We, we hammered this point. For the person who carries the knowledge, the main action is teach. Spread the knowledge you now have. That's one. So inshallah that part is clear. Two, here there is a very logical order in the duties. So the imam says there are two duties that he's referring to. There's learning and there's teaching. You, as someone who wants to, to learn, you have an excuse of why you're not learning. So long as there is no one who's teaching. I want to learn, but no one is teaching. No one is providing the content I want to get to. So I have an excuse. It's not being offered. There is demand, but there is no offer. So I have a good excuse. So logically, Imam Ali is saying, logically, in the order of things, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
first started by making it obligatory upon those who have knowledge to teach it. Then he made it obligatory upon those who don't have the knowledge to go seek it, to go learn it. So in the logical order of things, this makes perfect sense. Okay? I want to add a little subtle point here. I would say in today's world, there should be no excuse. Logically, potentially, possibly, we could come up with scenarios where there are excuses. In today's world, I can't come up with any. Unless you live on some deserted island completely cut off and you've never been exposed to any type of knowledge, I don't know how you're cut off and you're, what's your pretext and what's your excuse for not learning. Okay? But let us assume that you are in that situation. And two, I would add something, that's the subtle point, and this is more personal experience in life, from me and many, many others who have some amount of having gone through knowledge, a journey of learning, seeking knowledge. By experience, so this is not just personal, personal and many, many others, the moment you are sincere with yourself, telling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I really want to learn religion. And I want to put it out there as a challenge. Do that and see if suddenly an opportunity will not come up your way where suddenly the knowledge that you are trying to seek suddenly shows up. This is one of the things, weird, mysterious things in this life. You might ask for other things and they may, may not show up all the time. You may ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for more money, it doesn't show up. A nicer car, I don't know, better neighbors, whatever it may be. But this one, from experience and from others, if you're sincere with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, with yourself, I really want to learn religion. I assure you that the opportunity will just come up in front of you. In a way that removes all pretexts. You should have no more excuses. To the point where, if you still don't learn, you know that you're coming up with fake excuses. That your excuses are not even convincing to you. Okay, so that was just a little subtle remark on the side. The last point related to this is that while the Imam here is making it clear that the first duty or the bigger, greater duty is upon the teachers to teach. Because if you don't do that, the condition is missing and those who want to learn can't learn. That part is clear. But what should also be clear is that both are duties. Don't focus so much on the duty that scholars have to teach that you forget that it's a duty upon the learners. The Imam started by saying, Allah did not make the duty of the learners to learn Allah did not make it obligatory upon the learners to learn until he made it obligatory upon those who have knowledge to teach but it means both are duties so he has made the second one a duty therefore the first is a duty so therefore go learn there is no excuse a hadith that I think provides an explanation to this the Holy Prophet says, again, a longer metaphor, this one from the Holy Prophet He says, إِنَّ مَثَلَ مَا بَعَثَنِ اللَّهُ بِهِ مِنَ الْهُدَى وَالْعِلْمِ 
كمثل غيث أصاب أرضه وكان منها طائفة طيبة I'll read it and then I'll read it in English so that there are no interruptions فقبلت الماء فأنبتت الكلأ والعشب الكثير وكان منها أجادب أمسكت الماء فنفع الله بها الناس وشربوا منها وسقوا وزرعوا So the Holy Prophet says the example, the likeness, the parable of what God has sent me with in terms of knowledge and guidance is like the example of rain falling upon this earth. So the guidance and the knowledge that Allah has sent me to to you with from Him is like rain when it comes down on the land. There are some lands that accept the water and produce abundant vegetation and crops. And there are other lands that are barren, simply able of holding the water. So God made the people benefit from it by drinking from it, irrigating their fields and cultivating them. So now he just gave us two very different scenarios. The first scenario is a land that you can cultivate directly. When the water comes down on it, the vegetation grows. Okay, that's the best kind of land, the Prophet says. Secondly, there is a barren land. It seems empty. When the water comes, however, there is a benefit from it, in that the water is held, and so it becomes like pools of water. And so the people can still benefit from it. They can go and drink from it, and they can take it and use it for their crops. Okay, and then he continues. وَأَصَابَ طَائِفَةً مِنْهَا أُخْرَى إِنَّمَا هِيَ قِيْعَانٌ لَا تُمْسِكُ مَاءً وَلَا تُمْبِتُ كَلَاءً And then there is some rain that is going to reach other types of land, ones that are useless lands. They are unable to hold water and make pools of water for people to benefit from, nor can they produce any growth. فَذَلِكَ مَثَلُ مَنْ فَقُهَا فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ وَتَفَقَّهَا مَا بَعَثَنِ اللَّهُ بِهِ فَعَلِمَ وَعَلَّمْ وَمَثَلُ مَنْ لَمْ يَرْفَعْ بِذَلِكَ رَأْسَا وَلَمْ يَقْبَلْ هُدَى اللَّهِ الَّذِي أُرْسِلْتُ بِهِ The Holy Prophet says, so that is the story that the rain falling on these different types of land is the same story as my story to you coming to you with knowledge and guidance. These are the two main categories of people. Two examples. So this is the example of those who understand the religion of God and who learn what I have been sent with, they acquire knowledge and they teach it. That's the key. That's the punchline from all of this. The best type of land is which one? They acquire the knowledge and they teach it. And the example of those who do not raise their heads to it, or they do not raise their heads by it, so either you do not act you don't turn your attention to knowledge to learn it, or you do not become better by learning the knowledge. Both meanings work. And do not accept the guidance of God that I have been sent with is like the example of the barren land that does not benefit from the rain. Here, when we put this hadith with many other hadith, we can split people into four groups, especially the scholars, those who have the knowledge. 
because that's the point. The first one, the best one, is the one who learns, acts, and teaches. And we saw that in previous ahadith from Prophet Isa and others, and we might come back to it a little bit later in the series. That's the best type. You learn, you act based on your knowledge, and you teach. That would be the best type of land. The second category. There are those who learn and who teach. They don't act. They don't do everything their knowledge tells them to do. But they're good at learning it and teaching it. Why are they good? Why is this how we're presenting them? That's what the Holy Prophet said. There are lands that they hold the water for others to come benefit from. Is this person praiseworthy? No, the Holy Quran, you will remember, we talked about this. The Holy Quran and the Ahadith said this person is like, like a donkey, like a mule. And the Ahadith, it said like the mule who makes the mill go round and round, but he doesn't benefit in any way from the mill. Or the Holy Quran that says it's like the donkey that carries the scriptures or the books. Other people will benefit from the books. The donkey just carries them. You carry the knowledge and you pass it on to others. You're good at learning it and at teaching it. There is benefit to others from you, but you're not helping yourself. The third kind. There are those who learn. They don't teach. And they don't act based on what they learned. And then you have those who learn. And they don't teach. And they contradict what they learned. And that would be the worst type. They're not described in this way. But the Holy Quran is filled with these references. Those who know and who do the opposite of what they know. There are those who just ignore. They stay neutral. They don't do the opposite and they don't do what they know. This is a little bit less worse. Less bad, less evil. A second point from this hadith. The Holy Prophet presented to us three types of lands. And when we split them into four because we have many other ahadith that were more detailed. But when he came back to talking about the people at the end, he didn't talk about three categories of people. And this is important. He talked about two categories. He said, the, this story, this example is like the example of those who benefit from the knowledge and guidance I give and those who do not. That's it. We can split it every which way. We can add a lot more detail, a lot more categories, a lot more nuance. But at the end, there's right and wrong. Good, evil. Heaven, hell. And this was the point of the hadith. The Holy Prophet brings it down to its simplest form at the end. Yes, there are different types of land. There are lands that don't benefit from the knowledge and the guidance themselves. Others will benefit from them. But ultimately, you didn't save yourself. So you fall in the second category. You were good for others. But yourself, you didn't benefit from the knowledge and the guidance. The third point, very quickly, and I don't go deep into these points, but I think they're important to mention from time to time, that all of these hadith, they have more subtle, more deep meanings. 
So it's just a reference, a quick reference, and I leave these with you. Here there, there is a lot of beauty in this hadith and a lot of depth, especially if you take the meanings that the Holy Prophet is giving here. When he says, you know, the example or the story or the parable of God sending me to you with knowledge and guidance is like the example of rain falling on the ground, on lands. One way we would say this is just a metaphor. But maybe these metaphors are not just metaphors. They're not just random associations. We see a truth and we find something randomly that has in some aspect something similar to it. And so we create a metaphor with that. Sometimes there's a lot more meaning behind these metaphors. There's a deeper meaning. Perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created this world in a way so that those who have this light, this ability to see spiritually the world, they get to these meanings just by seeing the world happen as it happens. Perhaps there are those who can see when you look at water, you understand that this is a manifestation of guidance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends. When you look at geology, different types of lands and rocks, it might make you think of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created different types of people. And you can make yourself into this or that. This is perhaps why the Holy Quran talks about rocks and mountains so much. And it says if this Quran were to come down on a mountain, or even the rocks, the Quran says in Surah Al-Baqarah, even the rocks, he says at some point the Quran says their hearts are like rocks. No, they are harder than rocks. And then when it continues, it says, and even the rocks split up and rivers come out of them, streams come out of them. Maybe these meanings, maybe these references in the Quran, they're telling us something. When the Quran talks about water, it says we have made everything that is alive from water. And we have in the narrations that knowledge is life. And ignorance is death. Knowledge is light. Ignorance is darkness. These metaphors, perhaps they're not just random associations. That's all I'm saying. I don't want to go too much further. But I think just by leaving this point with you, I think you can think about it. This gives a lot more mystical meanings to the way we live our lives. It forces us to think about how did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create this world? Why did he create it this way? Why does the Holy Quran suddenly talk about Ankabud, about a spider and how it builds its web? Or about ants and uh, bees and vegetation and rivers and water and sun and light. And, and then it keeps using these images. The Holy Quran uses the metaphors. Right? This person who is just like in a storm. When he takes out his hand, he can't even see it. If he stretches out his hand in front of him, he can't even see it. That's how dark it is, the Quran says. It's so dark that if you put your arm in front of you, you can't see it from the darkness. That's how misguided they are. So maybe when I go through a storm, a thunderstorm, just from weather conditions, a spiritual, very spiritual, highly mystical person, their heart, their mind would go to these types of meanings. And if you are very sensitive spiritually, 
you might actually be able to do that without a push and a nudge from the Qur'an. And perhaps when you go back to the lives of our prophets, you see that this is what they go through. When the Holy Prophet goes all alone to meditate and think 40 years, uh, for 40 years before the Ba'tha, all alone, he would go in the mountains and he would meditate. Prophet Ibrahim السلام, when he talks about the sun and the moon and the planet or many other experiences described by the prophets. There's something mystical, there's something spiritual happening. Right? So I'm going to leave that at, at this. There's so much more. This opens the door, inshallah, to a lot of other things. But I think these references, when you see the Holy Prophet saying there's this metaphor the rain coming down on the land is like the knowledge that the metaphor, the superficial understanding would be it's like this linguistic device that I'm going to use to make you understand something a little bit more. But if you believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created this world, as the Quran says, in truth, bilhaq. This is truth. The metaphor is truth. Because really the metaphor should be a lie. The metaphor is I'm going to use something that has a similarity to what I want to say to help you understand what I want to say, but it's not actually it. There's a, a part of it that is a lie, that is not ultimate truth. It's not an absolute truth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I have created this world. This is all in truth. So why would the Holy Qur'an use these metaphors? It should be absolute truth. Don't use metaphors. Tell me the truth. The Qur'an says, no, everything I say here is the truth. Everything the Holy Prophet, every word he utters is the truth. Maybe it, I need to rethink how this world was created. Why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates the world in this way? So that the things created and the manner in which they were created bring me back to these same meanings to the same truths. They all come back to the same, they all converge to the same thing. Whether you find them in the words that are spelled out to you, human beings, ignorant, superficial that you are, that we have to spoon feed you like this, so we will. That's why I send you messengers and prophets. Or if you are a very highly, spiritually sensitive, awakened human being, that you can get to these by yourself. The world is created in truth. All these meanings converge. And not in a metaphorical way. Anyways. The last thing is the Holy Prophet when he began this hadith, he said, In other words, the Holy Prophet is saying, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent me with knowledge and guidance. So if you want to summarize religion, you want to summarize Islam, this is what we've been repeating. This is a knowledge revolution. This is a religion of knowledge. A lot of things are important in our religion, a lot. But perhaps nothing as important as knowledge. Nothing comes close. And if you read these hadith and you understand them, basically everything that you consider to be good and truth, there are benefits from knowledge. They stem out of knowledge. Again, to bring us back to the idea that therefore our communities need to be built on knowledge. This is how it was engineered. This is how the Holy Prophet presented it to us. 
This is a knowledge revolution. I will rewire you based on knowledge as opposed to jahiliyyah, as opposed to age of ignorance. This is the opposite. What I'm bringing to you is the opposite of that. Okay, so I'm going to stop here. The next one was, we're going to talk a little bit more about the duties of teaching from a couple of different angles, and then we'll finish perhaps with a social duty. We spent a bit uh, longer than I wanted to on a couple of these hadith, but inshallah it was useful and beneficial. So let's stop here. We have about 15, just a bit more minutes before the salah. So we have a bit of time for questions, comments, if there are any. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. So questions, concerns, comments? All clear? Totally. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit more about uh, Hilm, which we're translating as compassionate, compassionate patience. So obviously we know what patience is, but I'm just not understanding what compassionate patience is. Is it like being compassionate towards a person you're being patient Uh, So it's being patient Because I can be patient Out of different reasons If you read the definition As I said it's very difficult to translate him But if you read the definition Of of the, the construction of this word And its etymology and how it's used by the Arabs You are being patient Out of mercy You're not always patient Out of mercy I might be patient because I'm shy I might be patient because I'm wise. I know better. Sometimes I'm patient out of mercy. And that is often used, translated as hilm. Okay, that's why we used it that way. There, it's patience and that has a, a dosage, a good dosage of mercy or compassion in it. But it doesn't need to be that because sometimes hilm is used simply as wisdom. To have hilm is to have wisdom, to be wise. Okay, and there's other ways to use it too, but I thought this, and it doesn't need to be that. It's my own creation. <laughs> That's why you won't find compassionate uh, patience elsewhere. Okay? Okay, sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad.